So this is the second part of the incarnation of the Son of God. Uh, incarnation uh, comes from the word carne. You might think of, uh, of carnivorous or uh, what is that Mexican dish when you get in fajitas? Yeah, carne asada. It, it just means flesh. And incarnation means that the, the enfleshment of God into human, uh, into, into human form. And, and we're reflecting on this miracle that is what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. The idea that God has come and taken on flesh and dwelt among us. And today I wanna reflect on that idea that we sang this morning about the word made flesh that we see in, in John chapter one, the word became flesh. And I wanna focus on this idea of word or in the Greek, lagos, and made flesh. So I'm gonna take a, a selection of verses from John 1. We'll talk about the whole passage in, in diff, different ways. We'll talk about different parts of the chapter than just this. But, but in order to help us focus, I'm gonna read just a few specific verses that orient around uh, this idea of lagos or word and word made flesh, and I think an ultimate overhanging idea that's, that's being presented here in John. So uh, if you would, we'll put it up on the screen. And of course, if you have your Bibles and can turn to John 1, that is a great idea, because you'll see different verses that we may not have up there in John 1 as well. All right, so this is from John 1. I'm gonna read a few selected verses right now. This is the word of God given to us for our hope, and for our eternal joy in him. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side has made him known. If you were here last week, you know that we explored Hebrews 4. We tried to understand better this idea that this truth that God became a human being in order to relate to us, sympathize with us, suffer like we suffer, and all of our temptations and all of our trials, he sought to understand, not just intellectually, but by experience, what it is to be a person trying to follow God on this earth. And today though, I'd, I'd like to consider that same incarnation, but from a, a different slant. My hope is simple, that we would be able to marvel that this one who became a human is God. So last week we tried to focus on the fact that the one who was God became a human. Today we're gonna try to take it from the other side and consider the beauty and the majesty and the incredibleness and the awe of this one who became a human is God. That, that we might worship Jesus today 
that we might stand in awe of what has happened in Christmas and be brought closer to an enjoyment of this miracle of the incarnation. Marvel that God Almighty was made flesh and dwelt among us. So I want to start with verse one and two. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. I want to ask a question. What does John mean when he says in the beginning was the word? We're used to hearing that. We sing it. We know it from our Bibles. But it's just, I think if you're coming into the Bible for the first time, if you can put eyes on again and think about encountering the gospel of John and consider that sentence, in the beginning was the word. I think it's a strange way for a person who doesn't know the Bible. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying I, I don't think it's, it's simple. Um, in its, in its, uh, I don't think it's quickly accessible to someone who is trying to understand what in the world is going on. And I, I think John understands that. But I think it helps us to understand something about when John was writing to try to get in his mind and the Holy Spirit's mind as they're trying to communicate this truth. In the beginning was the word. Now, first of all, John is repeating in the beginning the very first three words of Genesis. It's the same construction in the Greek Old Testament. John uses here in the beginning. He's doing this on purpose. If Genesis 1, though, looks back on the beginning to stress God as the one who's creating everything, if you guys remember, in Genesis 1, it's God who is active. He commands. He goes through the days, 1 through 6, culminating in the creation of man. John is doing something different. He's bringing us back to understand not simply what God is doing, but who God is. His focus is not so much on God's creating activity, although he absolutely does deal with that very quickly. But right here in these first two verses, he's trying to engage us with who God actually is. In the beginning, who was God? In the beginning, what was going on in the Godhead? So we go all the way back to the beginning, before people, before animals, before plants, we reverse engineer all the creation story before the land and the ocean, before the earth, before the planets and stars, before anything. And John is saying, before any of this, what was there? What was there? The word. John is telling us that before any of these things, the word was there. In the beginning, John says, is this thing, this entity, always there, never not there, never not existing, called the word? What is going on? Well, if you were a, a reader in John's day, you and, and possibly John's intended audience, you would maybe have heard, if you had some learning, this word before. Word is lagos. Many of you guys know that already. But this is the word John uses. He could have used a couple of different words for word. He uses this word logos. And logos absolutely means word. Like, these are the words I'm saying. But it also had much more weight and freight than just words. 
in other definitions, logos takes on some real profound weight in the Greek culture. John is writing, at least in part, to Greek readers. He's also a Hebrew. So to try to get inside this idea of logos, I, I think it's good to think about both the Greek and Hebrew's understanding of logos. And we start in a little bit with Greek understanding. Various Greek philosophers and philosophies connected logos with very, very profound weighty ideas. And if you just listen to that word logos, look at its spelling, you can connect to some of that immediately because logos is related to our word logic. Because to many in the Greek culture, logos was synonymous with reason with sanity, with being rational beings, with the very core of what it means to be someone who tries to think clearly and wisely and want to live and be sane. So Lagos had this resonance with foundational rationality, foundational sanity, groundedness, ultimate reasoning. When someone says, I want to live and be happy. Like if someone came over to you and said, hi, I'm, I'm Mike. I'm Dave. Well, Dave, what do you want in life? Well, I, I'd like to live and not die. I'd like to be happy and not crushed. I mean, that's a weird thing to say, but no one says, why would you want that? <laughs> right? No one has to ask, what's that about? I met this guy, Dave. He wants to live and be happy. <laughs> What's up with him? No, there's no reason to question that idea. It's just rational. It's just obvious. It's reasonable. It's foundational. So here, Lagos is related to that which is in us, which seeks to make sense of the world, which tries to tries to live as things should be, this conception of what's reasonable, what should be, and you get the idea of sanity from this idea. Same person lives by rational understanding. So there's, there's a health and a soundness to their thinking in their life. And I don't think it's wrong to say, in the beginning was sanity. And some Bible translators translate this word logos, reason. Reason. In the beginning was reason. Rationality. Sanity. It's an incredible, I love, I, got, I just want to go off-road. This is a complicated idea. Many scholars debate what this really means. And I, I'm, I'm bringing you kind of a soup of different ideas that, that I've read and studied. I'm not trying to make things up here. But having said that, I want to tell you, I love this idea. Like, this idea is profoundly simple and profoundly amazing. And it really resonates with me that from the beginning, from all eternity, was sanity. Was wisdom. And goodness. And rightness. That there is a way things should be that is good and sane and right. And there is health. And not chaos and disorder and horror <laughs> and bad and that, that in the beginning, that always was sanity, reason. Logos was also related in the Greek world to the, the idea, it's very connected to what we just talked about. You could, you could kind of get there if, just in your own thinking to what should be, what is ideal, what is perfect, 
ultimate rightness. There's a guy named Philo. He was a Jewish thinker and he was inspired by the, the, the Greek philosophies to see logos as, as an actual person. He called the logos, the ideal man, the primal man, the foundational man, the man from whom all other men and women were sourced in. So John, I, I think it's fair to, to wonder at least if John isn't hinting at these things as he tries to relate to the Greek culture. And this has some parallels already in Jewish thought, this idea of wisdom and rightness and ideal, what should be. In the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom, I think it's in Proverbs 4. I don't have the exact um, verse, verses, but wisdom in Proverbs is personified. Wisdom in Proverbs, in, in some places, is a person. Wisdom is standing by God's side as he creates all things and wisdom rejoices. Wisdom isn't just abstract truth. Wisdom is a person, a being who rejoices as God creates everything. And wisdom is rejoicing, implying that all God does, he does in wisdom. So part of what my John might be saying is that in the beginning, ultimate reason, sanity and wisdom was at the core of God and was God himself. I just, I love these ideas. I just think it's, it, 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 it makes sense to me that that must be that for all eternity, reason and sanity and rationality Rightness must be and that we find these things in our God at the core of who he is. But as we said, John's also Jewish and in Jewish thought, logos word had its own freight and, and, and not completely disconnected from these Greek thoughts of ideal and perfection and reason. But it was much more oriented around Yahweh, who he is and what he does, much more explicitly. Psalm 33 would say, if you translated the Greek, if you translated the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language, which they did, and many people in that time had Greek Bibles, Psalm 33 would say, by the logos of the Lord, the heavens are made. He commanded and it stood firm. By the word, by the logos of the Lord, the heavens are made. Isaiah 55 would say, God's logos is active. It accomplishes all that God sets it out to do. His word is active and it accomplishes everything he sets it out to do. He says, so is my word that goes out from my mouth in the Greek, that would be logos. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. In Psalm 107, when people are facing death, God sends forth his logos to save them. That's in the Greek translation of the Hebrew. In Isaiah 40, God's word, his logos is eternal. So it's almighty, it's eternal, it saves. It does all that God wants.
In Jewish thought, God's word, God's logos is to quote D.A. Carson, his powerful self-expression in creation, in revealing, in salvation. When God creates, when God reveals, when God saves, his logos, his word is at work. I'm not sure that we have to really choose though between the Greek and the Jewish ideas. I, I think that these things were part of what John was trying to gather together as he sought to minister to Jews and Gentiles in this word logos. And I, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I could be wrong about this. Different theologians are much more definitive. But I don't think that we even necessarily have to get deep into Greek philosophy or get into um, a great theological discussion about whether to go with the Jewish line of thinking or the Greek line of thinking. Because I think there is something really, really simply profound here that, that, that is at face value clear. And I think that's sourced if, if we come back, if, if we just put on hold for a second the idea of rationality, reason, wisdom that the Greeks had, or even this idea of logos as saving and eternal and God's almighty work that's, that, does its, that does whatever God wants, that's, um, that's always existing. And if we just come back to this idea of word, logos as word, like the way you guys think of word or words. And we just stop to think, what do words do? Word, I, I just, I love the idea of words. It, one of these things that we, we know intuitively, but we, we don't often stop to really parse out and think about what's going on. It's kind of like music. You know, you, you turn on the radio and you oh, I like that song. Oh, I don't, I don't like that song. I'll find the right song. Oh, this song. I love this. This is great. This is great. But you ever stop to think about what in the world is going on with music? I mean, there's these sounds, and these beats, and they're creating these sensations in you of, of, of enjoyment or emotional understanding, or, and, and you're, you're hearing like sound waves that are bouncing off your eardrum, but inside you are memories and hopes and desires and sometimes tears. It's crazy. <laughs> like, it's crazy. It's a miracle, isn't it? Music is a miracle. It's a miracle. I mean, and there are a million other things that are like that. Food and romance and comedy, jokes. And miracles. I think words may be the greatest miracles of them all. Words make it possible for what is invisible in you and in me to become visible. Words make it possible for what is invisible to become visible. With words, I tell you what you don't know. And then because you hear those words and you understand words, you know from me what you didn't know. That's profound. We can't live without words. We can't love without words. We can't do anything without words. Not between people. Not relationally we can't. 
We have to have meaning and words make it possible for us to know what each other means. Through my words, you can find out what is hidden from you now. My will, you can find out what I am doing, what I will do, what I did do. You can find out how I feel. You can find out what I want, what I'm afraid of. And I I can do this with you. And so while I think that that Greek idea of reason, which is amazing, and, and the Jewish thought that we can see in the Old Testament even more solidly, that God's logos reveals and saves and endures forever, I think those are pregnant in what John is saying. I think John is also saying something very simple, that if, if we spent another two or three messages, we could connect to everything in the Greek thought and the Jewish thought. But, but I think he's saying that by God's word, he is showing who he is. The invisible is going to, in a way it never has been before, in a great fullness of God's disclosure, his self-disclosure, he is going to show us who he is. If we trace through all of John 1 and really all of John's gospel, you're going to see this idea. That through Jesus Christ, God is communicating. He is taking his deepest heart and he is taking what has been invisible to man for millennia and he is laying it all out there for us to see that he is showing by his word who he really is. And this word, this message is not just ink on paper. It's a person. It's a person. He's going to give us a person to communicate the deepest things that he needs us to understand about him. John says that this logos was not just with God. It was God. It was God. So stepping away from logos as an idea of like Greek, Hebrew, simple meaning of word. I just want to flat out just bring to you this central truth that God is saying this logos was with God and was God. The Greek construction here is very strong. The logos is not a God. The logos is not God-like. The logos is God. And this becomes even clearer just in the simple English. You don't have to go back to the Greek and try to figure out what happens with definite articles or indefinite articles, but it's very clear, not, not just in, in, in the, the Greek etymology of, of those issues of the uh, God, but, but in verses <clears throat> that follow, because John says, listen, John says in the beginning, he was with God to emphasize this, to tell us that all things were made through him which he could stop there. He could stop with all things are made through him, but he doesn't. He then says, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he's saying he was there in the beginning. Genesis one, he's there already. He's eternal. 
Before anything else, he's existing. And then comes this airtight case, case of the godness of the word, of the logos. And as we know, the godness of Jesus Christ. Because he, he is trying to say, listen, <clears throat> he's trying to say what it says. All things were made through him. And we might stop and say, even him? All things were made through him. Like all things were, well, but of course he had to be made first, right? Like all things were made through him. So did God make him? And then he made all things. And John stops that right away. He says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Without him was not anything made that was made. So are you saying that Jesus was not made? Yes. <laughs> yes. That is what I'm trying to say. All things were made through him. Except him, right? He was made by God the Father. No, 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 you don't understand. Without him was not anything made. Anything in the category of made thing is not him. He made it all. Brothers and sisters, John is saying very strongly, trying to right now, pull back the curtain on this Lagos and he is saying, this is God. This Lagos was with God and he was God. Jesus was with God at the beginning, not in flesh, but his invisible form as the second person in the Trinity was with God and is God, is very God. As the ancient creed says, God from God, Light from light, true God from true God. I've told you guys before in another message about this song by Joan, Os Joan Osborne that I, I grew up with hearing in the 90s, I think it was. Anybody know what song I'm talking about? Jess? Yes, and Jess remembers many times when I bring up old things. But it just tickles me every time I think about this concept that Joan Osborne, who sings this, it's a great song. What if God was one of us? I wish you were all older so you could get in the, I mean, well, some of you guys know this, but do, anybody, anybody remember that song? What if God was one of us? Just a lob like one of us. He's on the bus with us. Maybe he's going to see the Pope in Rome. It's just all, you know. It's a beautiful song. And it's a, it, 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 man, it just hits home because you just want to cry. You're like, yeah, that would be so amazing if only, like, we, we, just, we, just, we just would love God to be able to just come near and relate to us. But I also think like, what a poverty that Joan, uh, Joan Osborne sings that song. Like what a poverty of understanding. What is she doing? She even sings about the Pope, right? Like one of the denominations of churches that says that God I'm not a fan of the idea of the papacy, but, but the point is like, there it is right there. What if God was one of us? This is it. This is the point. 
Verse 14, the word, this logos, reason itself, sanity himself, wisdom himself. This word, this logos, God's salvation, God's creative power, God's eternal might. became flesh and dwelt among us. I would imagine that, that certainly those of you who are here who are believers feel this instinctively. But I, I think even when I wasn't a believer, so maybe you're, you're still on a journey of faith, I would imagine your heart just instinctually resonates with the idea of, oh, if God would come near. If, if, if we could just not be accidental, random, anonymous accidents of cosmology and biology. If we could just not be random, children of evolution, purposeless aimlessness, right? We, we just, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, you want meaning. You want meaning and, and, and you want life to make sense. And there's no getting around the fact that everyone knows they are not their source. And no one wants their source to be random accidental biology. Nobody wants that to be their father and their mother. No one wants their, th that to be their creator. Meaninglessness. You weren't made for that and you know it. You were made by glory and you were made to be glorious because you're an image bearer of one who is pure glory and beauty and truth and sanity of the highest infinite level. I mean, and so God says, of course, you're not an accident. Of course, you're not a random fluke of cosmology and biology. And I'm, I'm going to make sure you understand because I'm going to become one of you to come very near to you to show you who I am. And the word became flesh, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And finally, and fully, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Yes, full of truth, not untruth and falsehood and randomness and nothingness. And full of grace, here to give, because we know in instinctively we are just vessels of need. And so he's come to say, yes, life has meaning. He's come with truth. And he said, yes, I've come to help you. I've come with grace for you. This is the unsurpassable miracle of Christmas, brothers and sisters. The word that is God became flesh and has come with grace and truth. He has come near, not just to our location, planet Earth. But as we saw last, year, last week, he has come near so that in the person of his son, he can understand us. He can relate to us by experience. He has done this to show us who he is 
to show us the extent of his wisdom and his power and his love that we could find fulfillment in why we were made, which is to know him, to be like him. It was not enough for God to create this universe and to create you. This is, this is incredible. This is incredible, incredible idea. Listen, it was not enough for God to create this universe and to create you in order to show you his glory. That wasn't enough for him. In order for God's invisible qualities to become fully visible to you, it was not enough just for him to create all things and have you stand and look at the stars and the sea and the trees and say, oh, I, wow, God's amazing. I get him. I get him. It wasn't enough. We dare to say that God, to show you the full extent of who he is, to really communicate, to really be the word of who he is, to really be the logos, the revelation, the telling you, the invisible that's in him, making it visible to you, he could not hold on to being God alone. He had to go farther. And in the words of Paul, as he explains who God is in Philippians 2, he says, have this mind among yourselves. And I have this verse. Can we put it up? I believe I do. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the mind. This is at the core of God. This is who he is. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant So this incredible miracle of God's full revelation of who he really is. The one who made the stars and the moon and makes you and holds all things together. As he shows himself to you, he shows himself and he says, here's who I am. I am a servant. Isn't this the most beautiful thing in the universe possible? This religion of ours. And isn't it just what just has to be? I am a servant. He says, not just any servant. Born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God is of such infinite beauty and glory He's everything we could hope him to be. He will not grasp onto his right to Godhead alone. His character is of such greatness that he will embrace infinite humiliation. He is so lofty in his greatness and his holiness and his goodness that he will become supremely lowly. He will become one of us so that he can offer himself for us to death. John tells us in this first chapter, a sad thing. He says, this glory came to us, but we did not receive him. We did not want him. He came to dwell among us and we rejected him. He was crucified by those he made. 
his own creation, assassinated him. And yet, this was all part of his infinite wisdom to even more than ever show us who he is. The revelation of God will not be denied by our greatest sin. He will make it serve his purpose to show himself, to communicate, to make his word who he is clear to you. John verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the father's side has made him known. Jesus is the invisible God made visible to us in his words and his deeds. Hebrews 1.3 puts it this way. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He is the perfect image of the invisible God. What Jesus says, what Jesus thinks and feels, and even more fully, all that is confirmed in what Jesus does is who God is. Remember the Last Supper. Show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Philip, have I not been with you all this time and still you don't know me? Three years. Don't you know? He who has seen the Father has seen me. He who has seen me has seen the Father. This is why he became flesh, that you and I might see and know the heart of God. And the apex of this heart of God, the climax of this revelation of God, the pinnacle of this this revealing of the glory of God comes not as we see him in heaven enthroned and shining in glory like Isaiah 6 so much that we can't even look at him. No, It comes, this pinnacle climax of God's revealing comes as God becomes flesh and pours out his life for your sins and mine, suffering for you and me, naked and bleeding on a wooden cross. To say, I am a servant to the core and I will do whatever I must to save you. Much later in John's gospel, way out in chapter 17, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Father, the hour has come. This is it. This is the pinnacle. This is the climax. Show your son to the world so that the the son might show you to the world. He was with God and he was God. There is airtight unity (laughs) in this Bible. This is what the incarnation is the full display of the greatness and glory of who God is. And it was fully achieved in the death and resurrection of the word made flesh. 
May we, through taking the bread and the juice, see him again today and experience him.